This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression President Greg Lukianoff discusses his book, The Canceling of the American Mind. He argues that the right to free speech is being threatened by cancel culture. He's interviewed by Reason Magazine's Matt Welsh. We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C-SPAN's podcast. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operations so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. It's been five years since you co-wrote with Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, and since then, there's been a quite a number of books to come out talking about free speech, the rise of illiberalism in places where free speech is supposed to reign on campus, journalism uh, companies, and etc. What motivated you to write this five years later, and how is the canceling of the American mind different than what else we see out there? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been defending free speech on college campuses for 22 years. I'm a First Amendment specialized attorney who's also um, uh, specialized in academic freedom for years now. And uh, I had an opportunity to write a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind that could be really interesting because we had, uh, we discovered this amazingly brilliant, you know, 20-year-old named Ricky Schlott. Um, She's a Gen Z young woman. Um, She actually is a huge fan of Coddling the American Mind. And she came to both me and Height to say, listen, I dropped out of school uh, during COVID because I saw all the problems that you were talking about. Uh, and I wanted to, um, uh, you know, uh, write about the themes in coddling. So she, uh, she was such a great writer, we immediately made her a fire fellow. Um, and when we were, after I was uh, a year of working with her, I was so impressed. I'm like, you know, we should write a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind. because, And it will add the insights of a Gen Z young woman, which is great because Coddling the American Mind was so much about Gen Z young women. But as we were getting ready, I couldn't believe that I was still seeing people really staking their entire reputations on the idea that cancel culture was a hoax or didn't even happen. And I can tell you from working on campuses this long, it didn't just happen. It's the kind of thing they're going to be studying in 50 to 100 years, just (laughs) like we study the Red Scare today. So I was finally like, okay, that's it. I've had it. Like, I'm going to put this all in one book. I'm going to make three three primary points. One, cancel culture is real. It's happening on uh, on a uh, historic scale. And by the way, we take on both left and right, which is very important to, to a lot of people. Uh, The middle part is basically about reconceptualizing how you think about cancel culture. To think about it as only the most extreme way of winning arguments without winning arguments. That essentially, rather than persuade somebody, we've learned this very junior high school-like tactic, which, by the way, I I argue that it does in some ways come from junior high school, but I can get into that later, um, to uh, just scare people out of disagreeing with you or ruin their lives if they do. And the third part um, is us uh, beginning the process of trying to find a way out of this madness um, and trying to really make people understand that cancel culture isn't just about the, you know, the, the more than a thousand professors who have been targeted, for example. It's about what it does to trust and expertise. Because if you see that, for example, Carol Hooven at Harvard, who uh, was uh, started to be forced out by a, uh, initially by a DEI administrator, for going on Fox News to talk about her book, and she said, 
uh, she made the point that we should be kind to transgender people. We should be um, uh, we, we should use their pronouns. Uh, but as the author of a book on testosterone and an evolutionary biologist, we have to recognize that biological sex is real and it matters scientifically. And that led to a whole campaign against her at, uh, at Harvard. Now, and she she got extremely depressed, and she's now leaving Harvard. Now, that's sad all by itself. That's, ca- that's cancel culture. That's illiberal all by itself. But what does that do to people's faith and expertise on this topic? Because uh, the public isn't stupid. And looking at a situation where, like, even at Harvard, someone's making you know, a very modest point that nobody disagreed with up until very recently can be for- targeted and forced out of their job. Um, why should I believe anybody on this topic anymore? Because I now know that to, to say anything other than the approved line can get you canceled even at Harvard. So I, I think people really need to get that cancel culture is much more devastating to our shared world of facts than people understand. We are saddled with that term cancel culture, which you acknowledge and everyone else acknowledges is just there, for lack of a better term. So let's, uh, let's realize it and talk about it. What is your working definition of it? And explain briefly, perhaps, uh, to those skeptics, those people who have been, as you say in the book, gaslighting about uh, cancel culture, that it exists. What's the documentary evidence, perhaps with comparatives to aforementioned Red Scare and such? Sure, absolutely. So our, our definition is a historical one. We're trying to make an argument for thinking of cancel culture as a specific historical era. And that's partially from the fact that as a First Amendment lawyer who's very interested in the history of censorship, the moments of uh, what I call mass censorship incidents all have names. You know, uh, uh, the Sedition Act of 1798, of course, is the easiest one. The Victorian age, probably the longest one. Um, the first Red Scare, which is actually only a couple of years, um, and Red Scare II, which is 11 years, um, and also known as McCarthyism. We have all of these terms to describe moments when lots of people start losing their jobs or otherwise are targeted for their speech. Um, and we talk about, and part of our definition is for speech that would be protected under the First Amendment. What we mean by that, which we explain in an appendix because we don't want to bog the book down too much, is as an analogy to public employee law, a way to bring in a great deal of nuance and common sense to a definition about when when we think it's you know not canceling to fire somebody and when we believe it very much is. And we also talk about cancel culture being the culture of fear that resulted from uh, this situation of people losing their jobs for their opinions. Now, when it comes to the data, I mean, uh, the uh, w- w- as I just mentioned, we know we're only seeing a tiny fraction of this. Um, and I'll, I'll give a point of comparison. I started my job around 9/11. Um, actually, I landed in Philadelphia to find an air, uh, to, to find an apartment uh, to start my new job at Fire um, on 9:10 a.m. on 9/11. So all of my first cases were defending professors who said things about the attacks, including the very first letter I ever wrote was a defense of a professor who joked that anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. There was, uh, and this was considered to be a very bad attack on academic freedom. And at the time, it certainly felt like it was. And I defended uh, more left-leaning professors and more right-leaning professors in different cases who got in trouble for kind of different things. There was another professor, Mike Adams, who we talk about in the book, who got in trouble for actually criticizing a student who said America has uh, had the attacks coming on a, on, a, on a giant listserv on campus. So looking at the data, there were about 17 professors targeted. That's bad. That, that, that's a large number of professors um, in a normal historical year, certainly since the law was established between 1957 and 1973. This is considered a, a historic moment. And three professors were fired. 
all three of which, by the way, of, of whom, were fired for reasons that don't actually implicate academic freedom. Uh, Ward Churchill, a name you might remember, he was fired for gross academic misconduct, which was real. Um, uh, Samuel Arian, who was my first time defending him, was on TV. He was eventually fired not for his speech, but for ties to international terrorism. And the third one was for not actually teaching her class, rather giving an extended lecture on something completely unrelated to it, which they can, frankly, fire you for. Um, so three, uh, uh, th- three firings considered a big deal over the, o- over the course of years. I'm now talking about a, a, an era in which there have been, we know for a fact, we know that the numbers are much larger than this, there have been a thousand targetings of, prof- uh, of professors, with about two-thirds of them resulting in some kind of punishment, two-thirds. Um, and nearly 200 of them, at least through last July, were fired, with I think 40-plus tenured professors being fired. Um, that's the standard number for McCarthyism before the law existed, by the way. Be- before people knew you couldn't actually just fire communist professors for being <laughs> excessively ideological. That didn't happen until 1957. So uh, McCarthyism is 1947 to 1957. Um, the standard at the time, the biggest study that they did uh, of McCarthyism at the time, and of course we're still in cancel culture, um, was they found something like 62 or 63 professors fired for communist beliefs, about nine 90 professors fired for beliefs overall, um, and it usually is rounded up to about 100 uh, being, being the standard estimate. I think with, with time, we can now say that there are probably more than that, but again, we're still, it, we should be counting the, the counting that they did at the time, because we're still in the middle of this thing. Um, so you're talking about t- uh, three times as many communists uh, as they believe were fired. Uh, you're, you're talking about twice as many as the standard a- a- evidence of McCarthyism, and we also know this is an undercount, because one in six... And I really want to stress this. One in six professors say that they have been either uh, threatened with investigation for their academic freedom or actually, um, or, or actually investigated. And about 9% of students say that they've been investigated. And, and one, 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 more, one more detail. About 9% of, uh, during McCarthyism, um, th- th- the same study talked to thousands of professors, and they found that about 9% of them were saying that they were self-censoring. Um, that's really bad, to be clear. One in ten people uh, self-censoring uh, on, on campus is really bad. Um, and when we did our own polling on this, and these aren't exact comparisons because they, we also asked them, like, do you self-censor on social media, which didn't exist at the time. Um, but we found that the, the number was closer to 90% today. So I, I think that at this point, if you're saying that cancel culture doesn't exist, you're being willfully blind. And I've watched, the, and this is, this is kind of like my big ideological text, test. When I mention the fact that one-third of those punishments initially start from activism on the right, uh, sometimes Turning Point USA, a conservative organization that has something called the Professor Watch List, sometimes Fox News, for example, uh, that about one-third of those punishments initially come from the right. And if that suddenly makes people take this issue more seriously, I immediately take them less seriously. Because I'm politically left of center myself, but you have to care about people you don't agree with getting censored. Not because it could be you next, but because it's wrong. We're talking about academia here and uh, FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, uh, only recently rebranded to expression before it was education. So you worked on campus issues for a long time. And in many ways, this begins. The laboratory is the campus. And then it, it jumps the banks and goes into journalism. It goes into science. 
goes into psychotherapy, which hopefully we'll talk about a little bit later, which is crazy. That, that um, was the most uh, depressing chapter we, to research. But uh, what is your working theory? Let's stay with academia just for the moment before we go on to the other ones. What is your working theory for uh, why it exploded so much in 2014 in academia, and what were the sort of mechanisms uh, with which or by which it exploded? Yeah, um, why 2014 is a question we get a lot. And one reason why we didn't spend too much time trying to answer that in canceling is we spent the entire book, my, uh, my book with Jonathan Haidt, a coddling of the American mind, um, explaining why we think the students who are hitting campus around 2014 were so different. And by the way, that's partially the answer, is that Gen Z started hitting campus, and if you follow sort of cancel culture, you saw um, a lot of professors getting in trouble, a lot of students getting in trouble, demand for new speech codes in 2014, and it wasn't subtle. It It was something that was very noticeable at the time. And then you start seeing sort of corporate cancel culture as these students start graduating um, and, and moving on in, into jobs. And that's one of the reasons why it was so helpful to write with a 23-year-old, this uh, br- brilliant R- Ricky Schlott. She pointed out you know, that um, you know, we talk about cancel culture beginning in 2014, but I grew up with this. Um, this was the way we fought in junior high school. This is the way, uh, like I mentioned before. Uh, and the, the thing that really changed the social dynamic, which we talk a lot about in Coddling the American Mind, but take somewhat for granted in Canceling of the American Mind, is social media. And I know that people are tired of hearing that social media changed the world, but I try to you know, give a th- sort of um, historical explanation of why you can't... Uh, you you have to take this seriously as a major shift for the, yep, and I'm going to say it, the species. And here's why. As a First Amendment lawyer, and this is how much of a you know, nerd I am for this stuff, I took every class that Stanford offered on First Amendment. I interned at the ACLU of Northern California, and then when I ran out of classes, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. And the reason why there was, uh, the, there was this explosion of censorship under the Tudor dynasty is because of the original disruptive technology, the printing press. And, and people, you know, we think about all the benefits the printing press gave us, and over the long term, it absolutely did. It was transformative. There could have been no scientific revolution without it. Uh, there could have been no American or French revolution without it. But in the short term, it led to an increase in the witch trials, because the bestseller was the book about how to identify a witch. Um, it led to, uh, the, you know, of course, um, gross civil uh, uh, unrest. It led to uh, religious wars. You know, it has a lot of blood on its hands. And in the 1520s and 1530s, Henry VIII tried to put the genie back in the bottle um, by, you know, to make this thing more or less go away. And, spoiler, he failed. Now, that was just a situation in which you introduce several million people into the global conversation. Social media has done something that's never even, we've never even come vaguely close to. We added at least an extra billion people into the global conversation. And there is no way to escape that without it being incredibly uh, disruptive. So the way it actually uh, turned into cancel culture in some ways is humbler in the sense that, or actually uh, Tumblr plays a role as well, and not to make a joke there, but that a lot of these norms for how you... uh, frankly, kind of bully each other or fight it out in junior high school, um, they were things that were re- uh, refined uh, on smaller social media platforms, and then they were kind of a normal part of Gen Z life by the time they actually got 
uh, to uh, to higher ed. So social media is ultimately, you know, the reason why a lot of these trends sped up, and it also created new trends like, like I just said, Tumblr or or you know the right wing version of it, 4chan, all of these kind of nasty uh, uh, environments where people battle it out for social status using you know words alone. But why was higher ed so vulnerable to this? And the reason why higher ed was so vulnerable to this is both um, natural forces, you know, more or less, that, that essentially as higher ed became less, had less and less viewpoint diversity as it became more monolithically left-leaning, um, and that applies to both professors and even more so, by the way, to the ranks of administrators who, who have swollen over, over the past several decades. Um, as, they, as viewpoint diversity went down, um, that it shouldn't be a surprise that when people are in power, they, they start seeing free speech as part of the problem because they're, if there's going to be censorship, it's going to be them doing them. So it's a very normal temptation of power to become kind of pro-censorship once you are in power. But that's the natural fact, that, that essentially if you, have, if you don't have enough um, heterogeneity in your group, there's a tendency, as my co-author Jonathan Haidt likes to say, to sacralize your beliefs, to treat them very much like uh, uh, religious uh, b- beliefs and to protect them. But that's the unintentional part. I want to be very clear, though. There's been a very intentional plan to turn uh, academia and even the left against free speech going back to 1965. And we, we point at Herbert Marcuse as being kind of the par- pioneer of this, as a, um, a Marxist, um, uh, uh, cri- at the same time critical of Marxism, um, but wanted to follow the vision. He was still a big fan of Mao, for example, in the 1970s, which is not saying a great thing. He wrote an article, and he was considered the guru of the new left, a very influential guy. Um, He wrote an article in 1965 called Repressive Tolerance, which is very explicit on the idea that he believes to have a truly free and equal society, we need to repress the bad guys. Who are the bad guys? The so-called right wing, the so-called conservatives. Um, so it, I, I, I had to go back and read it to remember. It's very much a call for we should have free speech, the good guys, um, which basically means like his his illiberal version of the left, as opposed to my you know more libertarian version of the left. Uh, they should have free speech, but they need in order to make their utopia dictatorial powers to punish the speech of people who are um, uh, who are de- they deem regressive and and and, and right wing. So. And this, the torch was picked up on this by people like Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, the original, uh, the original people who started the, uh, the school of critical theory in, in, in law schools. And this led very quickly, just 20 years after the beginning of the free speech movement in 1964, it led to um, the sp- uh, speech codes being passed on college campuses, which uh, really started to come into their own in 1985. So by 1985, and uh, you already have universities adopting speech codes, and it's very intentional uh, to, to uh, uh, limitations on freedom of speech. The, the Words That Wounds article came out in 1980. Uh, and it was by 1989 you start having legal challenges to it. And from 1989 um, to 1995, all of these codes are defeated in court. Everybody thinks you know, uh, political correctness was this crazy thing, and it's gone away. Um, and, you know, thank goodness, because the professors and the students 
uh, got less enamored with enlightened censorship. Uh, I think a, a lot more kids of the boomers started hitting college, and they were actually pretty pretty good on free speech. But the problem was that it didn't. There wasn't any serious reform that took place after 1995. There was just a sense that the problem had somehow taken care of itself. And what happened after that, and I wrote about this in, in Reason Magazine, um, the, the, the first great age of political correctness, which is 1985 to 1995, since it was met with public scorn and since the speech codes were defeated, people thought, oh, thank goodness that's over. But what actually happened was the administrative class in universities hung on to these ideas. And by the time I started at FIRE in 2001, about something like 79% of colleges had what we call red light speech codes. So even though they were defeated in court, we found that schools all over the country had speech codes that were identical to the ones defeated between 1995 um, and uh, 1985 and 1995. Uh, so I felt like I spent a lot of my career trying to warn people that there's something bad coming here. There, there are really troubling attitudes about freedom of speech that exist in higher ed among administrators uh, and that are you know, also filtering down to K through 12 through education schools uh, and that we're eventually going to be you know, uh, paying for this. At, I, to be honest, I thought when I wrote my short book, Freedom from Speech in 2014, that, that uh, payback might be in the distant future. And I've been only shocked to discover that it happened a lot faster than I ever uh, expected. So I think that higher ed was uniquely primed uh, for cancel culture. I think it's done a really poor job of teaching people how to you know, argue fairly or how to win arguments um, by actually persuasion, for example. And so it's not a shock that things got much worse there uh, first. What is um, a little shocking is how bad it got in, in say, like the last six years. You referenced DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion practices um, in academia, which also go pretty heavily down through K through 12, use that as a way to get into other areas of science, of journalism, uh, of uh, even COVID, if, if that uh, uh, applies, how DEI has been part of the story of spreading cancel culture. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of these things where it's a great marketing coup to, ha to have diversity, equity, and inclusion in your name. And people, you know, including me, are inclined to like that. That's, that, that sounds swell. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the, the way DEI is interpreted and, and the way it's often meant on campus is actually a bundle of, of very uh, specific assumptions about human nature, about uh, group identity, all of these kind of things. And, uh, and it's something that we've seen DEI administrators come up in case after case that we've seen at FIRE. Um, including, you know, I was the person who videotaped the uh, when uh, Nicholas Christakis was surrounded by angry students and being shouted at, um, at at Yale, and I videotaped it to show that he he held himself incredibly calmly because I knew at that point from having enough experience on campus that if it actually turned into a he said she said between uh, between Christakis and the and the student group, he'd be out of a job. So I want I needed to show that. Uh, at the time. What I didn't know was that there were three DEI administrators in that group. Uh, <laughs> they weren't shouting, but they were, but, but they were there and not actually rating the students in. Uh, fact, the Carol Hooven case, started by a DEI administrator. Um, the, uh, the case at Stanford Law School, which just embarrassed me to death, it, it, it has a whole chapter devoted to it. This is a case where a Fifth Circuit judge, a conservative Fifth Circuit judge, to be clear, a Trump appointee, was invited to speak at Stanford Law School. Now, I want to stress here, 
there's nothing weird about conservative uh, judges speaking at Stanford. It happens all the time. Uh, but in this case, administrators met with angry students about, uh, about Kyle Duncan speaking at Stanford. They met with them for hours. Um, then suddenly, when they shows up, when he shows up, there's an angry mob there. Right before he talks, you know, someone shouts to him, "I hope your daughters get raped." Um, and there's a 10-minute shout-down, and by the way, precisely 10-minute shout-down, um, uh, b- before uh, he talks. And then this administrator, who hadn't introduced herself before, Tyrion Steinbach, gets up, she, uh, and she reads from a prepared speech. She has prepared a speech, a seven-minute long speech, about whether or not the juice of free speech is worth the squeeze. I know that sounds weird, but like, she repeats the, is the juice worth the squeeze? She also makes the point that, like, uh, she she sort of targets the professor the, the 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 judge as well, saying, you know, think of all the pain you've caused by being here, and is the juice of that pain worth the squeeze of having you here? And it's like this is a law school, and this is a Fifth Circuit judge. Like that, he's kind of he's one step below the Supreme Court. That that's kind of a big deal. Um, and then as soon as she leaves, it turns into just nonstop heckling. But they let him get uh, some words in, in in response. It's generally just a very you know ugly situation overall. We we cover it. We give it its own entire chapter to illustrate our larger point that cancel culture is just one way of winning arguments without winning arguments. Because we point out all these other very academic tactics to never actually address the meaning of what somebody says. Now, the most disturbing thing to come out of the DEI uh, movement on campus are DEI statements, um, requiring DEI statements to be admitted to school in the first place, to get uh, in order to be admitted to graduate school, in order to uh, attend conferences at this point, to in order to um, in order to to uh, you know participate in any number of, of of things that scholars have always participated in, you need to actually do your uh, DEI statement. And and last time I checked, something like fifty percent of large schools already do this, and it's heading heading more towards like seventy five percent. And here's why you should be concerned. We have a chapter called the Conformity Gauntlet that I'd like uh, I'd like you know that if you do read just one chapter, that's probably the one you should read, because most of you like listening to this, I don't think I have to convince you that there's no way to make something uh, like a DEI statement not a political litmus test. That basically that is asking you to state your politics and then to see if, if we if we approve of this. But for those of you who are skeptical and need convincing, uh, Nate Honeycutt, who uh, back while he was out of college but now has since become a fire fellow, did an experiment where he tried different kinds of DEI statements. He found something like um, like um, like thirty five hundred professors uh, who, who, uh, to evaluate these, these five different kinds of DEI statements. They evaluated one that was um, about class, uh, lack of class diversity in higher ed, something very dear to my heart, something I take very seriously and I think is actually the most serious uh, diversity la- lacking, in, particularly in elite higher ed. They talked about religious diversity, viewpoint diversity, and the final one would be one that could be described as, and I don't really love this term, uh, woke. Uh, basically saying all the things that, uh, the very rigid ideas of identity and what they mean and intersectionality. And the only one that would have actually gotten you admitted by the standards of this experiment was, of course, the one that was 
parroting the exact ideology they wanted to hear. All these other ones that sometimes they claim is, oh, you can say whatever you want in a diversity equity uh, statement. No, you can't. Um, and the, 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 the viewpoint diversity one wouldn't have gotten you in. The, uh, the, the religious one definitely wouldn't have. And even the socioeconomic one, which did a little bit better, just a tiny bit, was still not considered the right answer. So the idea that you have this little viewpoint diversity in higher ed to begin with and then you add a political litmus test on top of it is uh, crazy. We've spent some time uh, talking about kind of left of center or left directed yes. um, uh, censoriousness. Um, you talk in your discussion about the culture of free speech broadly. Two different types of rhetorical fortresses. Yes. In your uh, in your view, the efficient rhetorical fortress coming from the right, and the perfect rhetorical fortress coming from the left. I would invite you to maybe talk about the efficient a little bit. Sure. But first, but first, as just a setup, what do the two have in common? What are they doing, and therefore we are all doing, regardless of whether we haven't set foot on a college campus since 1990, what are we all kind of either witnessing or taking part of in the way that we just have normal arguments and debates? <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, this was actually something, you know, to the extent to which I was writing a book about a lot of depressing examples, uh, the part where I got to have at least some fun was to talk about my observations um, and my and Ricky observations of the way we argue and how dysfunctional it is. So we start out with the tactics that both sides use. Um, and we dub the first one the obstacle course, which are standard logical fallacies. You know, um, th things that you know, every, uh, everyone does more, uh, more or less um, just to win arguments cheaply. Um, including, for example, uh, accusations of bad faith, which is you know, calling someone a grifter, for example. In the uh, and we call that the obstacle course. Then you go to the minefield, which are the which are also tactics that the right and left use. And the one that's become the most relevant lately is what is what we dubbed hypocrisy projection. And this is something we see all the time at Fire. Someone who only cares about censorship when it's directed at the left or the right, when they see us take a case on the left or the right and and, and announce it on Twitter immediately, sometimes in all caps, you know, where is fire on this case? Um, and it's always someone who only cares about one side, but they expect you to be hypocritical uh, and only defend uh, the side they don't like. So it's, it's projecting their own hypocrisy is what we mean by it. But the funny thing about this is time and time again, it is someone who um, doesn't realize that we were on that case sometimes weeks before. <laughs> Um, and I, I remember actually my, probably my favorite example of this was someone um, asking, where's fire on this case that they assume we wouldn't be involved in? And the thing he was linking to was actually a fire document um, that was only made public because of fire. I, I, we've had people do this when it's kind of like, dude, the thing you're linking to, we're quoted three inches down. Like, like, like we're in that already. So hypocrisy projection, when you start looking for it, is everywhere. And the right and, and left do it. Um, you know, like we have this... Um, Palestinian, this case like right now involving whether or not you can de-recognize um, Students for Justice in Palestine. And of course the argument against Students for Justice in Palestine is uh, made in Florida and by Brandeis University is that they're materially supporting terrorism. Now if they can prove that Students for Justice in Palestine is materially supporting terrorism by all means like that's, that's a felony and, and you, people would be, would be and indeed probably should be arrested uh, for that. But given that they're mostly p pointing to hortatory language in the, uh, in, in the policies of Students for Justice in Palestine that encourages uh, members to think of themselves as part of the uh, pro-Palestinian resistance, 
um, just hortatory language. That that's not enough to uh, match the very very serious claim of uh, of material support for terrorism. And someone, you know, wrote something immediately from the right, being very angry at us, like, "Where were you when Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, got uh, um, got d- disinvited from um, uh, from Brandeis?" Now, what's funny about that is that was 2014. You know, like so that was a long time ago. So for most other people, it would have been like. Oh, I, I, I was in junior high school, but I'm an old man. So I was like, here's the article I wrote in the Huffington Post about that <laughs> uh, in 2014. Uh, you know, and one of the reasons probably why you know about that incident. You uh, referenced Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's running for president, has made fighting back against woke uh, and fighting back against kind of the preponderance of university academia based um, censoriousness and DEI policies, uh, kind of central to at least uh, some of his national political ambitions, and he's been part of passing and signing into laws there. People who support him, and sometimes him, he himself, will say, look, you know, we kind of have to fight fire with fire, to use a terrible <laughs> term given who we're talking to here, but um, we're showing the left, we're using the left's own tools against them because what choice do we have? There's only one conservative for five trillion uh, uh, left of center uh, <laughs> academic administrators. That's a precise number, by the way. I think so. Um, I saw that in the appendix uh, <laughs> D in your book. Um, but uh, what do you say to that argument? Because it is on the rise, and it's particularly on the rise, I think, post-October 7th, the uh, Hamas massacre in Israel, yeah. uh, where um, there's been a lot of, of tumult on college campuses, including the uh, student uh, Palestinian student organizations. So what do you say to that overall approach? Where is it wrong or is it wrong? Yeah, I mean, I have lots of responses to that, um, and one of them is that I take a backseat to no one on advocating for higher ed reform. I've been doing that for 22 years, probably more, uh, since e- even before I started at FIRE. Um, I've written about this in, the, in re- recently in the National Review. I've written about it in uh, on, on my substack, The Eternally Radical Idea, about big ideas, because I, I think higher ed has just gotten way too expensive. Like, even that fact alone, like how much... Uh, they the idea that they try to argue with a straight face that it costs uh, $70,000 for tuition, um, but that only covers half the cost of educating a single student. If you're saying that we can't educate students for less than $140,000 a year, we've done something terribly wrong. And that's even before you get to the ideology, the lack of viewpoint diversity, the, the, the lack of due process, and free speech. But if, but I, when I look at the attempts to uh, rein in higher ed, uh, some of them, some of them, I don't, I have no issue with. Like, and there have been some of them saying, like, there was one, there was a law in, in, in North Carolina, basically saying you can't compel people to say things they don't believe, and that's actually a great First Amendment value. That's actually well established. There's been other ones that try to decrease the the number of DEI administrators or administrators overall, and I make the point that even though people have objected to that, I'm saying you need to understand that the the, the D, some in some cases, not all of course, but in some cases, DEI administrators are a threat to free speech and academic freedom on campus. You know, I gave three, three examples before, and there's countless more. Um, but if you're going to go after the curriculum in higher ed, uh, then we have a problem, uh, because that's unconstitutional, and you don't want the government actually deciding for uh, higher ed, like, what their curriculum needs to be. Um, and so when this law came out, and uh, just to also address a stereotype that sometimes I see on, on, on the left, is there's an idea that there's been this massive curricular attack on higher ed. There has been one law passed, the Stop Woke Act in, in, in Florida, that threatens the uh, cu- uh, curriculum uh, 
on campus. Fire and the ACLU uh, in separate lawsuits. We challenged it. We defeated it. And by the way, we gave perfect warning to Florida saying, this is unconstitutional. Actually, I went so far as to say, this is laughably unconstitutional. <laughs> um, you know, if you care about higher ed reform, first thing you got to do is pass something legal, for goodness sakes. So we sued, we sued for it. We defeated it. They've rewritten the Stop Woke Act a little bit. It's still unconstitutional, and we will be challenging it again. But here's the problem. It set back the reform movement tremendously. It took huge energy away from it, and now basically people are, are, are kind of trying to paint everything with the brush that it's trying to be the Stop Woke Act. Again, like I said, there's been one law, and that's, that's really bad, uh, but so far for now it's actually been defeated. So I, I think actually that effort is set back uh, much-needed reform uh, that could otherwise already be happening. Talk about how cancel culture or just the bad way we now argue um, has affected psychology of all damn things. Oh, man. Yeah, this one really gets to me. Um, So we wrote about... um, trends in psychology uh, and I, you know I'm, I'm, the thing that led me to writing Coddling the American Mind were my, was my own struggles with depression. I was, I was hospitalized as a danger to myself in 2007 um, and, and, and because of that everybody who fights this stuff pays, who pays a psychological cost you know contacts me to tell them like how exhausting they find this stuff so like practically everyone I know like needs either ha- either needs therapy or, or is getting it uh, in some way and having some contacts who are actually in psychology pro- programs and meeting more through the you know, the Fire Student Conference, which um, uh, which is something we do in Philadelphia every summer, which is amazing, um, we learned that in clinical psychology programs, they're really telling psychologists to uh, psychotherapists to intervene um, when they hear wrong think from their patients. And I'm, I, I, I don't know if this is everywhere, but I've heard it enough. It shouldn't be anywhere, <laughs> essentially. And I've heard also that students are uh, painting at length about what to do if it turns out, God forbid, they should treat someone who turns out to be a Republican or even worse, a Trump supporter. Um, I'm Democrat myself, but the idea that uh, a what should a psychologist do, a, psycho, uh, a psychotherapist do when they find out their patient is actually more conservative, they should treat them compassionately and try to help them, not correct their beliefs. Um, and so that was one of the most disturbing chapters that we wrote. As far as something that could be <laughs> an incredibly depressing follow-up to Canceling the American Mind, that could easily be expanded in, into its own book um, uh, all, all by itself. Because I, I, I think about what would have happened to me if in 2007 I had, since I was part of one of the reasons I got so depressed was because of the culture war, and it was exhausting. And my, my, uh, my, my left-leaning girlfriend hated me when I took cases on the right, and um, you know, my right-leaning uh, uh, folks that I would meet at a bar would want to punch me, literally. Like, I nearly got in two fights uh, because I defended people who, who said insensitive uh, uh, stuff you know, directed at the right. Um, and it was exhausting. And if I had showed up when I was getting close to, when I was actually contemplating suicide, and my shrink actually tried to correct my beliefs about the world to tell me it didn't really look that way, I don't know if I'd still be here. Talk a little bit about uh, what happens to trust when supposedly or aspirationally neutral people, institutions yeah. especially, are seen to weigh in very heavily on one side of this and use some of these tactics that you talk about and uh, criticize in the book. Yeah, we have a whole chapter on what COVID did to trust and expertise. Um, And in that case, we give the example, uh, we give actually many examples, but one of the most vivid examples is Jennifer Say. 
Um, and she was an executive at Levi's. Uh, she was, you know, um, you know, potentially uh, going to be like a was in line potentially be the future president of, of Levi's. And she was a well known as an advocate for the rights of uh, of K through twelve students, particularly minority K through twelve students. Um, but both her kids, I believe, were biracial. And when the lockdowns happened in 2020, she made this argument. This is going to be really bad for kids, um, wh- whatever its result for, for the spread. This is really going to harm kids, and it's going to harm the most vulnerable kids the most. And for this, it was treated as if she had said, a, uh, said something blasphemous. Um, and, and, and remember like how, how the ideology that I believe was already there just felt so... Um, uh, so tense in, in 2020. And so there was a whole campaign to get her to apologize, to take it back, to acknowledge her privilege. And eventually they, they offered her a severance package, um, which she didn't take because she wanted to be able to tell her story. Now, it's a bad story for someone to be forced out for saying something that's just their opinion, period, even if they happen to be wrong. But it's now pretty much the consensus that, yeah, Regardless of anything else, there was serious harms to young kids, particularly minority kids, uh, for that uh, for for not having face to face schooling for such a long time. So, and every time, so uh, uh, when you know uh, people act like we know way more than we actually do, and in this case, we, there was this kind of dead certainty that lockdowns were good, and they couldn't. Uh, and 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 if you think they could be harmful to kids, don't say that at all, or you know, uh, face get uh, the possibility of getting canceled, just like Jennifer per se did. Um, when you create that kind of environment of certainty, pe- people kind of call your bluff. Um, I-, I thought the same thing that happened when um, early on in COVID, the first couple people who started saying, you know, there's a virology lab in Wuhan that's about respiratory viruses. Maybe this was a lab leak. And the problem is, I don't know if the lab leak is true. Um, nobody knows if the lab leak is true. Uh, but what I do know is that my friends, my highly educated friends, who suddenly came in and said, well, that's ridiculous. We know that it came from a wet market, were deluding themselves. Because it's like, what, there's been some massive investigation of Wuhan? How did the, the Chinese government let us do that? That's amazing. Wow, I guess we finally know this. But again, people aren't stupid. And they look at that going, listen... I don't know if this is true, but I know you don't know this is true, and you shouldn't be actually going after people's careers with this level of certainty. So I think that the uh, a lot of the COVID mistakes um, came from not leveling with the public about what is known and unknown, but instead acting like we had a much greater level of knowledge than we did is devastating to trust and expertise, and we need experts we can trust. The flip side of that is, as you document in the book, is that it becomes very, very easy for those who are anti-establishment or who bang the drum about the uh, untrustworthiness of those supposedly in, uh, neutral institutions to dismiss whole swaths yes. of people. Talk about that dynamic a little bit and how it relates to Donald Trump, frankly. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we, we talk about the two different rhetorical fortresses, and they're the styles for winning arguments without winning arguments that are specific to the left and the right. I talked about the ones that were both sides. But um, the, and the perfect is, is, is Byzantine and wonderful because it's kind of a structure of beauty because it was more developed in academia, so a, a lot more twists and turns. We call the efficient rhetorical fortress um, on the right because it's just very simple and straightforward. It's more of a talk radio kind of idea. You don't have to listen to anybody you can double liberal or woke. 
Um, you don't have to listen to anybody who is a journalist, even if they're conservative. You don't have to listen to experts. And I, you know, we make a point that sometimes the experts don't do themselves any favors, but if you have a general rule about never listening to experts, um, that's a problem. And of course, for the most uh, aggressive um, uh, on the right, uh, anybody who dismisses Donald Trump, I think people will be surprised to find out that we get more hate mail for coddling the American mind by orders of magnitude from people who thought we were not fair to Donald Trump in our explanation of Charlottesville. We actually, Height and I wrote like a whole response to this about like why, no, actually we were right on this. Um, and on the right, it can be incredibly easy to, to dismiss people that way. And that chapter was very interesting because we listed a lot of the times that you know Trump wanted to get particular uh, journalists fired. One of the most fun cases, though, and I, I just did her show as well, most fun, of course, like in, by that I mean interesting. You know, Megyn Kelly was lucky enough to actually be canceled by the right for being too hard on Trump, um, and by the left uh, for saying that when she was uh, when she was a kid, it, you know, people putting on blackface for Halloween was comparatively normal. Um, so we we have th- three chapters on, uh, on on book challenges slash book bans. Uh, we have another chapter on uh, and those are legislative attempts. So not te- not technically our definition of cancel culture, but we thought important enough to cover. And then we talk about attacks on the media, and we give a lot of examples of that coming from Trump. But we also talk about this movement that you mentioned earlier on the right that is not a libertarian right, but a more uh, like common good um, a, a libert- that not common good common good politics I forget exactly what they call it yeah but but this idea that essentially um, free speech a lot of these small l liberal ideas are actually part of the problem and that essentially a much stronger governmental hand is, um, is what's needed but a more explicitly conservative uh, governmental hand and that that scares me I, I actually I, I think I'm with a with a lot of Americans particularly in, in the center left and center right I like liberalism, small l liberalism. I like, you know, the vote. I like democracy. I like diversity. Um, and I think some of the trends that I'm seeing on the right, largely, and uh, to be fair, in response in many cases to, to some of the stuff they see uh, in the left. This is always a, um, what, what, I call, what we call it is a polarization spiral. The, 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 there's no politics in a vacuum. You know, the, the, the right does something, it pisses off the left, the left gets more extreme, uh, rinse, repeat, uh, as we talked a little bit about in, in, in uh, coddling as well. And one of the things that we're trying to do in the book that is perhaps more ambitious than could ever be realized, but is to call out these lousy ways of arguing just in hopes that we could use this extra billion eyes on these problems uh, to solve problems rather than cancel people and repost cat videos. Let's uh, apply some of your frameworks and insight analysis to events that have taken place since the book has been published, or at least yeah. since you haven't been able to correct it or anything. Um, <laughs> most notably is uh, post-October 7th, the uh, yeah. massacre there. One thing that we've seen a lot of um, is posters being put up uh, college campuses around yeah. town, New York City, elsewhere, and then torn down. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, people are filming some of the people tearing down the posters and saying, well, and then the people tearing down the posters being filmed, saying you can't film me. Uh, help us think about this Oof. through the terms of cancel culture. Yeah, this this one's tough because um, when it's someone who... So, so there's a case involving, I think his first name is Michael Eisen. 
um, who retweeted a article from The Onion, um, and, uh, and the satire was that, um, it, you know, it was regretful that a dying Palestinian boy's last words wasn't condemning Hamas. Like, it, it was a very sharp-edged kind of, um, you know, criticism of, of, of the way we talk about what's going on um, at, at, uh, 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 in, in Israel since the attacks. Um, and, and that was the, the final straw that led him to be fired. That is absolutely our, within our definition of cancel culture. And, and of course, people since have argued, well, there were more reasons than that. And I'm like, they always say there are more reasons than that. There very well might have been. But if the straw that broke the camel's back was retweeting the onion, that's cancel culture. Uh, uh, absolutely. When it comes to the tearing down of posters of kidnapped children and elderly people and friends and family, that's something that is tough partially because it is itself illiberalism. It is intolerance itself. So you can't say that there's some kind of special free speech value in tearing down other people's posters. That's mob censorship. That, that, that's private censorship trying to actually literally limit the, the, the spread of, of, of true facts. So I don't have... I, I have very limited sympathy for the people who, 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 tear, who, who tear down the posters. The only sympathy that I do have is, and it, and it can only be patronizing um, to some degree, which is, okay, you know, they, they grew up in environments where, the, um, you know, being pro-Palestinian was so automatic that essentially they, they, don't, they, they don't want to even have to look at something that, that, you know, that problematizes that, that, that issue. Um, and the other part of sympathy that I have is that once you actually put someone on video, you can start getting, you, I mean, unfortunately, it, it's something that we, all of us who are in the public view, I, I get them, you, you get death threats. Um, and if you're a woman, you tend to get rape threats. It, it's truly awful. But here's something very strange that's coming from campus that I, I, uh, I, I would like to call out. There's this idea that students, particularly in higher ed, have a kind of quasi-right not to be videotaped or not to be shown or to have their names out there. It's a special kind of like bubble idea of, of, of a right in higher education that I think is um, not, well, for one thing, it's not doxing. Doxing, by the way, has no, ser no meaningful legal, re uh, um, uh, 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 no meaningful legal definition. But generally, you know, it's revealing someone's home address, which, by the way, is legal. But I do think it's it, it's not something you should do. Or revealing someone's uh, 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 a private phone number, which again, legal, uh, but but something that I, I think is worthy of criticism. But just showing someone's face um, is unavoidable. And I, this actually happened at the, in the Stanford case. This happened at, at Yale. There was an argument that essentially, well, because um, the response to this bad behavior is going to be so bad, we can't actually show the students. And that's, that's a special exception that, does, that nobody else gets. And oftentimes the students who are doing the shouting are actually the ones who would be very happy to reveal everybody that they're opposed to. Um, so w w does this mean I'm being callous about the then threats against them? Absolutely not. Uh, as a First Amendment lawyer, one thing that uh, sometimes people think that you, you uh, the, as a First Amendment lawyer, you think there should be no exceptions to the First Amendment. Um, I think that's nonsensical. There's, there's no such thing as a true free speech absolutist. I actually think the, the exceptions that we have in the law make a great deal of sense. Um, including threats doctrine. And I actually think that we've done uh, the First Amendment no favors by not actually investigating th uh, true threats of harm or death um, on, on social media, for example, because it leads people to think, wow, free speech sucks because I can be targeted. I can even be, uh, people can threaten to rape me and terrify me, and, and apparently that's protected. Well, I'm here to say that's not protected. 
and nor, nor should it be, and it should be investigated and punished. So when it comes to the potential downstream harm of having your face out there for doing something that's you know, morally reproachable, um, then you have to focus on the people doing the threatening. You have to f- focus on the people doing the harassing and doing the stalking. But it can't be the answer that you simply can't put up pictures of people doing things that are themselves extremely illiberal. What say you to, for example, um, there's been uh, quite a trend of big figure donors to Harvard, to the University of Pennsylvania in particular, but other places as well, um, since October 7th saying um, we don't want to send our money to these little anti-Semitic hate factories. (laughs) Um, And in one case in the University of Pennsylvania, they were referring specifically to the um, unsavory, from their point of view, invitees to a Palestinian writers festival. How is that uh, looked at through the prism of cancel culture? If I am not going to stroke that $50 million check to Penn because they are platforming Palestinians. So on the one hand, donors can do whatever they want with their money. On the other, if they're demanding that programming be stopped or faculty or students um, get punished for, to be clear, clearly protected speech as opposed to threats or discriminatory harassment, etc., we have a problem with that, uh, and, and we will uh, object to that loudly. And once the student or faculty member you know, gets punished, then that's very much a fire case. Um, on the other hand, the uh, I can't say that it would be the worst thing in the world if a lot of these major donors stopped giving huge amounts of money to these incredibly wealthy and powerful institutions. I mean, Harvard has $50 billion to one side. It's the, that's its rainy day fund. Um, and the idea that people keep giving these huge grants to it it enables cancel culture. It's one of the reasons why universities can not really care about uh, public pressure. Cannot can completely uh, like Harvard until, by the way, until Harvard ranked uh, dead last in our campus free speech ranking, which is an, which is a, based on thirteen different factors. Not something that we put. Some, you know, uh, we, we didn't have any say in the in where they ended ended up in the end. Um, they, Harvard always ignored us, no matter how bad the case that we were we, we were fighting, and they they suddenly started taking us seriously. But I do think if donors start saying, "Listen, I'm walking entirely, and I'm giving my money to <laughs> the campus free speech rating, uh, you know, at Fire or the um, or, or the University of Austin, you know, the new experimental liberal arts college," I think we'd be living in a healthier country. Uh, I also have some sympathy for this scenario. Um, after the Hamas attacks, I know a lot of these university presidents, uh, knowing what they actually think, uh, are pro-Israel, and they were horrified, like all of us were, um, by the brutality of the Hamas terrorist attacks. And I know a lot of them actually would have uh, said something very condemning if they weren't afraid of their own students, f- faculty, um, and administrators. And that's cancel culture itself. John Haidt wrote something pointing out that some of the distortion, some of the weirdness you're seeing on campus is coming from cancel culture itself. It also, I think, is one of the reasons why some of the students on the Harvard letter were so sure that it wouldn't be that controversial to, on the day that the attacks are still happening, to say this is entirely Israel's fault. So when donors are actually saying, say something you don't believe as a public statement, I, I have an issue with that. I think that's an inappropriate use of power. But when they're saying, say something you actually believe, you coward, um, I, I do have some, some sympathy for that. But I, I really do think that the best thing that can come out of this is people be aware that Harvard, Penn, 
uh, and uh, Harvard, Penn, Yale. These are all schools that come that do terribly in our in our free speech ranking. And I think that the only way they're going to learn is if people stop applying and start giving stop giving massive amounts of money to it. Um, in that same survey, the big, biggest survey ever conducted, by the way, fifty five thousand students polled four biggest databases on student cancellations, professor cancellations, speech codes, and deplatforming. The elite colleges did abysmally. Um, actually, only technically we, we rated. We actually used abysmally as, as, as a term. So only fire. Only Harvard rated technically abysmally. But uh, but, but UVA and uh, and University of Chicago did pretty well. But I think taking your money, putting it in more experimental ways to do higher education, cheaper ways of doing higher education is a good way to go. And um, I think that also being aware of these lesser-known, usually technological colleges that actually have great records on free speech, where students say you can disagree productively, uh, sending your kids there instead of just expecting them to be the 16th generation of Harvard graduate, that we, I think that would be a good outcome for all of us. One of the interesting things about your co-author, Ricky Schlott, is that she's from Gen Z. Yeah. And Gen Z turns out to be, at least preliminarily, surprisingly resilient when it comes to uh, free speech and cancel culture. A little bit different than the millennials above them. Uh, talk about that uh, in the waning uh, two or three minutes we have here. Yeah, the, one of the interesting things to learn is that the population um, that hates cancel culture the most, um, it's not boomers, it's not Gen X, the best generation, of course. Um, and it's definitely not millennials. Millennials have the biggest, uh, unfortunately, that stereotype is true. As far as like anti-free speech views, millennials do the worst of any, any group by far. But Gen Z hates cancel culture the most. Um, they grew up with it. They're sick of it. They don't like it. They don't want to, th this to keep going. And that does give me at least a little bit of hope. Uh, give us a, a few tools, uh, Greg, if you will, as we're, as we're walking out the door here. How do we train ourselves to be better at arguing and to not fall for the kind of rhetorical uh, traps and shortcuts, though, uh, attempts to sort of wave away entire swaths of people so as not to uh, have to argue with them? Well, we have a lot of suggestions on thefire.org. Um, we are also on the Eternally Radical Idea, my substack. Um, but the most basic principles, the good news is, they're ones that Americans already know. And they are reflected in idioms that were very popular when the two of us were kids. But Ricky, my co-author, had basically never heard. I mean, she'd heard of them maybe in passing. To each their own. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Walk a mile in a man's shoes. Don't budge, uh, uh, judge a book by its cover. These are all small L liberal ideas, small D democratic I I ideals that should be back in circulation as a way of checking yourself to, to say, who am I to cancel this person when I know that I, 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 I that in the grand scheme of things, I'm just someone with an opinion that might ultimately be wrong. The book is The Canceling of the American Mind. The authors, Greg Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott. Greg, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.